Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. Today I've got with me Charlie Brigden from Movie Drone Podcast. Hello, Charlie. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very well. Now, Movie Drone is a podcast about what? Uh, film soundtracks. Okay. Specifically film scores. Okay, so with that in mind, uh, with and, and, and listeners to the BritFlix podcast will know my, my, my bias towards horror, I've invited... Charlie on to talk about five great British horror film scores, which I thought would be a fun thing to do. So before we get into the details of what they are, do you want to talk about maybe generally speaking from your kind of film score point of view, why a score can be so important to a successful horror film? Um, because horror more, more than any genre is, um, so there's so much important place on the sound um, where pe- people are often talk about the uh, how things like like splatter films for example aren't scary and, and gore films and things like that um because they show everything on screen whereas the more successful horror films um kind of get your imagination going by giving you the sounds and they don't they don't show you everything um because our imagination is so much more powerful than anything that anyone can actually show us on the screen and it's such a personal thing as well in terms of how we interpret those sounds with our life experiences and what we've been through it's kind of You think of horror and you think you think of the dark and what's in the dark and hearing something is usually much much scarier than seeing something and that's why that's why that's why score is so important because it can really make or break um 
and that that kind of that that um that experience being able to give a sense of presence to something that doesn't isn't being shown visually jaws is, is the obvious example with that um is uh is is something very powerful and um just kind of i think speaks to us more um emotionally than in than um intellectually it is it is almost like and jaws is an example alongside say um john carpenter's halloween is that a certain sort of signature or refrain can take the place of the character in our imagination, or the, certainly usually the antagonist of some description in our mind's eye, can't it? It's Absolutely. Like... Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, film music is kind of based on repetition anyway, but horror especially so. And yeah, it's just kind of creating an almost kind of Pavlovian response to something. So when you hear that specific piece of music, whether it is the shark theme, whether it is the uh, the Halloween theme, or something along those lines, um, then that immediately connects. Um, you you you're connecting the dots there, and you're thinking, okay, so that's connected to the killer because I guess that's that's the unique thing in horror is it's almost always connected to the to the, the monster or the killer so that kind of gives us an idea of what potentially what the killer is doing and from there on in the uh the 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 film is able to kind of play with the conventions of it as well um and uh so they can kind of mess around with it a bit do variations on it sometimes use it sometimes not and um but yeah, that that that, that the, the thematic aspect is is very important um, in a lot of horror. Yeah, it's almost like it, the the moments where you only hear ambient sound, and then the score kicks in is almost is almost like the layer that you need to know the horror's coming, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Silence as well. Yeah, the the, the silence in in our film is so important as well. Um, again, because it it does kind of play with conventions as well, but also it's it, it's just a great way of, of building up tension, especially if you can keep it for enough of a rhythm when people are kind of trying to guessing maybe when it's going to come in, but they don't know exactly when. So there's very much an air of tension there that's created from that. I mean, I don't know whether there is a pattern of any sorts, but just thinking of of your kind of broader view of of um, of soundtracks and scores from around from around the globe, is there a particular kind? Is there a particular signature score that you that you th- that you would associate with British score, horror scores, or is there not? I don't know. That's that's a it's a difficult one because. Um, so many composers, especially American composers, are influenced by um, British and European classical music. Um, so you've kind of got um, British composers like Elgar and uh, Ralph Vaughan Williams and people like that um, that really have an influence on, on a lot of American composers. Um, so it's, it's kind of... I guess John Barry is is probably the the most I can think of that that really still kind of has had always had like a, a really English sound to him. 
um, and, and a really British feel. Yeah, and the reason I ask is because okay, because when we look at certainly classic British horror films and compare them to their American or Europe or continental cousins, you can see which is British and which is American, which is which is the kind of French and or Italian or whatever. It's just I just wondered if music in in your with your kind of observations had had any had any similar sort of I guess trends or fashions or anything. It's it's difficult because um, a lot of English uh, sorry a lot of American composers um, really took a lot from. Uh, British and and European composers, um, and you have composers like Elgar and, and Ralph Williams and Holst and uh, people like that, um, great British composers um, that whose work is really kind of integral in a lot of American works. But I guess really something that the British and certainly the European in general like to do or seem to do a lot more is is kind of experimentation. Um, you certainly have people um, like Delia Derbyshire and people like that who was doing all the uh, really crazy uh, electronic work, and we did that stuff like um, the Legend of Hill, uh, uh, sorry, the Legend of Hell House, and certain stuff like that that she did. Um, and then even now you have people like uh, Michael Levy and stuff like that. I mean, her uh, score for Under the Skin was terrifying, and uh, so it's, it's that, yeah, that, that kind of ex- experimentation has always uh, been a bit of a hallmark of, uh, of, of British scores. So, right, let's, let's dive into your kind of... I'm not, we're, not gonna, we're not claiming for any minute these are the best. I just did the, the, the sort of remit, like when I spoke to Christopher Brown recently about his five, about five great British horror films, is that the point of this exercise is to just highlight some good examples. So not to say this is the best and there are. Because I, I think if we start to treat art like a competitive sport, We'll fall over ourselves trying to just trying to justify what essentially becomes subjectivity. Um, so we're going to take we're going to take these as your opinion and as things to explore because obviously we'll cross they cross over each other and I'm no doubt you're going to you're going to mention other scores as well while you're talking about it. But like I did with Chris, I want to I'm just going to set as because we've got five to talk about and it doesn't mean we have to talk for this long. But if I set as a ten minute limit. We'll stop with a ten minute buzzer goes off and move on to the next one. Is that all right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But if, but if we actually segue into the next one, I'll follow you. Don't don't wait for the. Don't, you don't have to talk for ten minutes with me. If you if you feel that you because the order I've got is we've got don't look now. We've got Hellraiser. We've got the Omen. We've got Twins of Evil, and we've got Peeping Tom. So if you want to go into one of those as as far as your thought process goes, then I'll follow you. And we can, and then when we've got, when done them all, we can wrap them up. But I'll, I'll set the ten minute limit on each one so that we don't end up spending twenty five minutes talking about one and, and and just mentioning the title of another. All right, so we'll kick off. The clock's going. So we've got Don't Look Now, nineteen seventy three. Whose score was it, and what what was it? What is it that that for you that score does well? Right. Um, so Don't Look Now um, was um, scored by a composer called Pino Donaggio. Um, it's a very f- famous composer. If you're very familiar with the films of uh, Brian uh, Brian De Palma, um, yeah, he did the music for things like Carrie and uh, um, and Blowout and uh, Dress to Kill and things like that. Okay, pretty much signature and, for De Palma movies. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yes, yeah. so all these crazy, a lot of stuff that kind of is horror or kind of veers into horror. Um, and uh, amazingly, Don't Know Now was his first score. Um, he 
yeah, he he was um he was he was he used to write songs, and uh, so he actually the um the song uh, you don't have to say you love me he wrote that so definitely has has a great sense of melody behind um and and don't look now is just such a beautifully haunting score um and it's just really interesting i mean it's it's obviously it's a masterpiece of british cinema anyway um but just just the way both the film and the score really kind of play around with things um is just amazing um i mean this kind of the the the, the two themes for the, the two the two characters john and laura John's theme is the one that opens it and the really kind of beautiful delicate piano as their daughter is kind of walking along and kind of even with that beautiful music um, you realise there's, there's still a sense of tension under it Yeah, I mean, what well, for me uh, i would never listened to it until, you, until we arranged to do this, i would never listened to the score in, in its own sorry, on its own even and while watching the film, I've always been aware of the hauntingness of it. But listening to it on its own, in isolation, without the images, it is, it is a really... It surprised me how delicate it is and how beautiful it is. I mean, still, the haunting qualities are still there, but, but, it, but it was, it was, it, it's a lot more... Uh, taken away from its image, it, there's a lot more comfort from it, if that makes sense. Absolutely, and, and, and certainly it's, that's kind of a theme amongst horror films, really. There's a lot of music from horror films that's actually really, really beautiful. Um, I mean, I mentioned Carrie earlier, the, the Pino DiMaggio did. Um, there's some actually beautiful, absolutely beautiful music in there. The main theme for that is just stunning. Um, and it did kind of... Even stuff like... Um, like, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that Morricone did for, for horror films, and he did um, The Exorcist 2, and the, the theme there for Reagan and Exorcist 2 is just absolutely stunning. And I see, actually, it popped up again in um, in um, The Hateful Eight. Oh, did it? Yeah. So, And I, I only saw The Hateful Eight recently, and um, it really kind of – it was so jarring. Because I was just watching it, and uh, and then the music just started, and it's kind of this weird kind of kind of um, lullaby type thing, and um, and I kind of heard it, and thought, wait, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and it was just jarring, and it's just, but it's it's just a beautiful piece of music, and it's, and I guess because so much of of horror is is. Uh, about 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 the human side of things that a lot of it really tries to ground it. For instance, Poltergeist is another one. Jerry Goldsmith score and the uh, the, the theme for Carol Ann, the uh, the girl in that, 
is a very, very beautiful kind of, probably surprisingly, very innocent kind of um, theme, which is then used against the uh, the more kind of nasty, bigger, more traditional horror stuff to be able to... Um, to, uh, to juxtapose that, really. So you've got the kind of sweet stuff on one hand, and then you've got the nasty stuff on the other, and the kind of where the where the girl is kind of sucked into all that stuff, and then is used to uh, to come back. So beauty is something that does come up in in horror a lot, and certainly here the way um, p putting something beautiful something like you said something perhaps comforting over images that aren't comforting cre creates a really interesting experience so the uh, the ending of the film so we've got where he finally got a really kind of suspenseful bit when he is is chasing the uh the red coat as it were um and then he uh and then finds it and it turns around and it's the the Dwarf, whatever you want to call it, um, and uh, and and stabs him, and um, and when he's dying, um, so and can get all these kind of images together with him, blood spraying out, um, and it's just goes back to his piano music and and back to that moment of her of of his daughter, and it's just a really really beautiful emotional moment it feels like it, it it's written for a film because because and because of that use of repetition as well in the sense that it, it, it's it's his full arc isn't it it's it's like this was his death when, when when that when that first rip when that first moment in the back garden at the start of the movie sets us off on this journey this was the destiny we're heading for even though we didn't know it and he didn't know it the score is reminding us that was this is all part of the same journey, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, and it's, it's, it's just an amazing moment. And um, the one then just kind of ends with this beautiful kind of emotional version of her theme. Um, and the uh, as she goes off on the boat on the with the that he saw before. Um, and um yeah and it's, it's just it, to, just to consider that as his first score as well it's just amazing and it's just it's it's just a brilliant a brilliant brilliant score to an, to an amazing film and just um an absolute classic has it, has it been has it been has it been written about the, the score itself has anybody commented on on sort of the conversations between director and composer, do you know? Do you know of any of those kind of details about? Because because obviously you don't achieve that. I guess you don't achieve it by accident. And given what the subsequent work is, clearly there was a skill in the composer that was that, that Nick had recognised, bringing him on board. Yeah, it it, it doesn't. I don't, I don't know to be honest with you. I mean, to be honest, with you, films film music isn't written about a lot anyway. Um, and uh, and horror film music especially isn't written a lot. Um, so, um, I, I mean, I imagine there are probably, there's probably something with interviews with him talking about the music, whether it's Rogue or 
Donaggio or both of them together, um, just because it is such a such a kind of classic example. But I mean, yeah, because I've done, done I mean research in my podcast and things like that, and um, all the stuff from that. Sometimes it is really really hard to be able to just get some actual basic information about about these uh, these things because um, because it's just generally film music isn't really that, written about it that much yeah because if, if you've, you've got the whole thing I mean all film suffers from this is like if you'd have any, any aspect of the film that isn't the director's direct job is the, 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 the complaint of if you'd have brought me on earlier I could have had greater influence, you know. It just interesting to know, you know, whether or not this score was was just like, here's a film, put me a score in it, or here's a screenplay, here's my ideas. This bit here is where, you know, long before a camera starts rolling, the composer was thinking about how to make it sound. Yeah, I mean, because uh, I have, I mean, the ones I have read where composers or composers I've interviewed um, when they talk about what's... Oh, ten minutes up, here we go. You might have to continue that thought if you want into the uh... right. So the next film is Hellraiser. Yeah, so Hellraiser is scored by an American guy called Christopher Young, um, who is very much um, categorised um, by his horoscopes. Um, it's something he's actually not fond of, actually. Um, yeah, I was I was reading um, an interview with him. And, and how he said it, he feels he's been typecast as as a horror scorer, um, and he's he's done all sorts of all sorts of films and all sorts of scores, um, but he has done a lot of uh, of, of horror scores. That's the thing. If you're trying to do, trying to maybe kind of get some variety and diversity into your work, 
Um, but you've got someone saying, oh, I've only ever heard you for horror music. So I guess that can put a downer on things. But it's such a, I mean, again, this is, this is one where I, I, it's a film I know really well, but not a film I'd ever isolated the soundtrack for. So again, before you and I spoke, I made sure I did listen to it. And I was, I was astounded by how, how <laughs> astounded sounds a bit strong, but I'm listening to music and I'm a fan of music anyway. So once you isolate it away from the movie, you can, you can hear so much more. And it's a, it's a big score, isn't it? It's massive. Yeah, it's, it's really big and it's quite old fashioned. And, and that, that is the, the kind of stuff he generally does. Um, and so certainly in his earlier part of his career, I mean, it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's really kind of, that's what I love about it. It's this huge kind of big kind of gothic, um, very kind of seductive, which kind of obviously fits in with, with the whole theme of, of the film anyway. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, and, and that kind of those main titles um, are just so wonderful and so big. And uh, it just really gives a very certain mood to the film. Um, and I, a lot of times, especially now where we don't really get main titles anymore, there's so, so many films now where the titles are at the end or it's just one word, it's just, just the title. And then it goes off where I've always been very much a um a big fan of of main titles um uh, especially from the music side of things but in general because to me they've always been very much a kind of a gateway to the mood of the film so because it's the one area as well where the composer generally has a blank slate to be able to say okay this is the type of film you're going to watch this is the mood that we're going to put you in for that. And then from that, he can establish themes that, that then he can, re, that he can, that can reoccur later in the, uh, in, in the film. Um, I love that I just, idea of create of like the opportunity to create the rule book for what you're about to listen to alongside this movie. Yeah. If, 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 if you think of seven, um, where they use the, the Nine Inch Nails remix in the in those opening titles and the opening titles themselves with all the, the making of, of John Doe's books and all of that. That gives a very definite idea to what that film is going to be like and certainly how that film was in terms of um, the impact that film had. And uh, when you look at kind of the, the, the film's of that ilk that kind of came before it, I guess stuff like Silence of the Lambs and things like that. And then you have something like Seven come along um, and it just hasn't, with with how kind of grimy it is and and how kind of just, just plain fucked up some of it is, um, pardon my French, um, then uh, it's, yeah, and it's, it, so but, but that's all from the, uh, the opening titles, being able to do that. So when you have the Hellraiser's opening titles, as I said, it's very seductive, it's very gothic, it's very evocative. Um, So that's able to give you, introduce you to the film through music there, and then allow that mood to kind of take you 
and then let the rest of the film with it, the visuals and the dialogue and all that um, take it on. When you say the when we say the word gothic, it, it rarely it rarely means you know Acacia Avenue suburbia. So so to set that world up with just music and then us buy into that, even though essentially we're at you know forty three Acacia Avenue suburbia for most of the movie, aren't we? But 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 you're not you're under no illusion that this is this is that, that there's traditions of, of of gothic horror going on right under your very nose and the music the music sort of conveys that really powerfully. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's interesting as well with Hellraiser is that um, Chris Young wasn't the original composer. Um, the original music was um, being done uh, by a band called Coil. Um, was it really? Uh, yeah. And um, they did some stuff for it. And it's the, the stuff they've done, they, they released it. I think they call it like the Hellraiser Sessions or something like that. And it was it's really interesting. Um, and a lot a lot cool, a lot more kind of grimy and kind of, um, yeah, less gothic, more kind of, I suppose, more dread, more, more than anything. Yeah, because it's quite, quite like a kind of, uh, I don't know, gong meets skinny puppy, aren't they? They're not. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And uh, I, I don't know exactly the reasons why it was, why it was taken out. Um, it might mean a studio thing. I'm not sure, um, but uh, I, yeah, cause I, I, I mean, it'd be interesting to see the film with their music. Um, um, but they didn't know the the Christopher Young score is is just um, amazing, and uh, it was really kind of a gateway for him into even though <laughs> being typecast, just being able to uh, to do all these scores, and it's actually. Um, I think it was a piece from the uh, the the sequel Hellbound um, that ended up being used um, in a scene in Spider-Man Two, um, Sam Raimi's film. Um, I think it was the kind of the the Doc Ock birth scene, which was very kind of horror uh, anyway, and um, by all accounts, Danny Elfman and, and um, Sam Raimi didn't have a particularly good time on the uh, on the film because Raimi um, was using bits of Christopher Young's music. So for the third one, he just hired Christopher Young. Ah, yeah, no, I know he's in his credits actually, so that makes sense now. Why, why keep pilfering? Why not just go straight to the source? <laughs> if you could, with with the kind of budgets I imagine you'd get with Spider Man. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, how reasons a uh, just yeah, it's it's brilliant, and it's it's always been one of my favourites. And the uh, the the sequel score is very good as well. Horror horror doesn't have to get a bad rap for it, given given its popularity, doesn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. No, 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 horror is is always kind of the it's the bastard stepchild of of the film genre. Um, and there's kind of yeah, it's, it's like you said, it's it, it's always kind of you see actors that go and they do horror films. Um, and then they go on to other things. Uh, one example I can think of is Matthew McConaughey and uh, Renee Zellweger doing Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4. Um, and then trying to get that suppressed when they tried to release it 
I think around the time of Bridget Jones' Diary or something like that. It's a long way from porn, isn't it? You know what I mean? It's like, it's, I mean, it's not a, not a great film, but it is funny that someone would go that far. Yeah, I guess, but it, it does have that reputation. Mm. Which... Oh, there we go. There's our 10 minutes that we dedicated to Hellraiser. So, 10 minutes on The Omen. Now, before you start talking about it, just for me, this one is, is the one when, when I separate it from the film... I find it really hard to listen to. It's a very baroque sounding. Is that the right word? I think, isn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, this is something that when um, reviewing and, and um, writing and, and doing podcasts about soundtracks is the whole thing about separating from the film um, and because I mean, obviously the the first. The primary objective is to serve the film, um, and from that, it's it's another a tool of the director, like the cinematography, like the set design, like the costumes, all that kind of thing. Um, but it has a unique perspective in that it's probably the the only thing really that gets generally gets released as a separate thing away from the film um so there are different there have, there have been differing school of thoughts in regards to the soundtrack album and how it should function and a lot of people a lot of composers um when they arrange them um, don't necessarily arrange them in the order that goes in the film chronologically, but arrange it more to be much more of a satisfying experience as actual listening. ask for it to be in chronological order and ask for every kind of little bit um, to be to be given and then it's like Christopher Young's a really good point because he did the music for Sinister um, and when he looked at the soundtrack doing the soundtrack he thought well because of the way the music in Sinister works very like very weird kind of very atonal kind of stuff um, then he said, okay, I've got to do something different for the soundtrack album to make it listenable. So the, so the soundtrack album for Sinister is different to the, sound, to the actual score for the film because of what he did and adding other elements and creating something which, while this, the source is the film, it's very much a separate thing. Um, which is really interesting. Um, I mean, the, yeah, the omen is is a very interesting one. Yeah, because I mean, it's 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 terrifying. We should tell everyone who's it by the omen. Oh, it's, by, it's by Jerry Goldsmith, who was a, a genius, and he did a fair few horror films as well. And, and I mean, really, but he did stuff like Alien and he did Gremlins and things like that. Um, and the uh, 
But the, the Omen to me is the one that's sort of, if there's a stereotype of what a horror soundtrack should be like, this one's full of all the big, the big moments yeah. of dread. It's the, the, the kind of build, it's obviously there, but, but what hits you, or what strikes you, sorry, is, is how shrill it gets, as it were. Even though it's still melodic, it's not like it's not atonal. Oh, no. But, you know, it, it attacks you. Mm, that's, the, that's the better word, yeah. Yeah, and, that, and that's what so much, so much good horror music should do as well, is attack you, to, to kind of assault you, really. Um, and, uh, yes, it's quite interesting with, with the omen... And there's kind of the little kind of period in the, the 60s and 70s where they had all the films about the devil children and things like that. And you had stuff like Rosemary's Baby and then The Exorcist um, and stuff like Amityville and The Omen. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I mean, if you, if you look at The Exorcist, I mean, The Exorcist is all music taken from um, composers. I mean, there's, there's stuff from Christoph Penderecki in there. Um, who's a really famous composer because a lot of people who do stuff like horror films take the kind of stuff he used to do and kind of use that as an influence for their own horror music. Um, Goldsmith himself used some of it and um, in um, in Alien, um, and there was another composer as well called Bella Bartok who did kind of a similar thing and they were both kind of similar schools. And there's a lot of stuff from him as well in 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 The Shining, along with Pederecki. Um, so this really kind of there's one thing that always kind of is kind of I always call it insectoid. Basically, what it is is just getting the the strings at really really high notes, really kind of fluttering really really fast, and it sounds like insects, like the the, the kind of high pitched high frequency buzzing of insects. And it's a really, really horrible, um, uncomfortable sound and really kind of claustrophobic. And that's something that, that's used a lot. Was, was, Gold, was, Gold, was he consciously using that? Was he, was he... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. People, people do, yeah. Yeah, because they, they listen to Because they've all been schooled in, in, their, in, their, in their kind of classical music and all this and the kind of thing. So they know exactly what they're doing. That's a very conscious thing that that bringing these kind of classical influences into the uh, the the more kind of commercial film world. I remember when I was a kid because I wasn't ever someone that listened to classical music, and I listened to some Stravinsky one one Sunday morning, and I came downstairs to make a cup of tea. And my parents said, "Are you coming down to kill us now?" <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it's a joke, but it was it was funny. I hadn't given even give it a thought. I was just thinking, "This is nice, nice and dark, like the like a lot." I was listening to Skinny Puppy and and Ministry and all that kind of stuff, and I, I didn't seem to. I couldn't. I wouldn't have separated the two, like or, audibly speaking. They just were aggressive and and and, and uh, bleak. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, is a lot of these a lot of these composers just created some really, really, really kind of dark and quite terrifying pieces, um, really. And kind of classical music has a very much kind of, I guess, there's a, there's a very kind of, I mean, there's, there's certain, certainly a kind of class thing attached to it. And it was, and also, so, again, there's, there's, sometimes there is a snobbery between people who were, uh, 
who like classical music, who looks down on people who like film music and things like that. And sometimes there's kind of a thought of, of how film composers want to do classical music and a lot of them do as well a lot of them just just kind of go and do their own pieces and things like that when they're not doing film music but yes so so there's there's so much influence this and it's it's like the beatles the beatles um and then from there the stones and zeppelin and sabbath and how all that just goes in waves and waves and waves and uh, adds adds to the evolution. I suppose as well. I suppose when film, when 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 classical composers were working and they were building scores, which would have been performed, which they themselves were meant to be a journey in in, in a, an emotional one at that, and and they were they were often detailing you know horrendous things that happened, and that's what their music was trying to convey. So I suppose that's why sort of. Um, Phrases and refrains that become become recognised as being that that kind of the sound of dread, the sound of fear. Into why wouldn't you mimic it? Just in the same way that an indie band listens to Revolver and goes, I know how to make indie rock music now. Exactly. You yeah. know what I mean? So you don't you don't have to. It doesn't. It, it's still it's same but different. I, get, I like that. I mean, I do think that's an interesting aspect as well. That the uh, the kind of inverse snobbery. It kind of reminds me of that time in 1990 where football fans became opera fans, and opera fans got upset that football fans liked <laughs> opera. You know, which always has always stuck with me. I think even Harry Enfield did a satire of it. It's it's, it's one of those great things. Where you're not allowed to like this, and and in many ways, film scores. I think. Can, can are easily the best gateway to classical music rather than just jump straight to classical music. I think if you're interested in in making more people listen to it, then film scores are a great way of getting getting your ear attuned to it. But I've just talked over the last two minutes, last minute there. We've got the fourth one now. I'm not going to. I've not seen this film to my shame, although I read about it and I thought I should do now. Obviously, uh, it's uh, Twins of Evil. Twins of Evil is, is one of the later um, Hammer horror films. Kind of when stuff like in the in the sixties, um, the horror landscape kind of changed with stuff like Psycho, and then you had Night of the Living Dead and things like that. Hammer kind of seemed a bit quaint, so what they kind of tried to up their game a bit. And while they couldn't match up with some of the gore that was kind of being done, um, they kind of matched up with a bit more of the sex as well. Um, so, yeah, so they kind of really got into a lot of uh, um, a lot, a lot of sexy stuff, um, and a lot of campy stuff, which a lot of it is, I, and I, I love it as much as the other stuff. Twins Beavers is one of my favourite, I guess, because it it rides the line. So basically. Um, You've got Peter Cushing in in a villainous role, um, which is interesting considering at the time he was most famous for being Van Helsing. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was before Star Wars, so he hadn't really kind of been known as a villain. So you had him, and he was kind of this witchfinder general kind of role, was this puritanical, he used to go around burning women for being witches. And um, these two his nieces come to stay with him because their parents die um he's twins and uh in in the, in a nearby castle um 
a vampire does is uh, resurrects a, uh, a a dark lord and then goes and gets manages to uh, to seduce one of the twins into becoming a vampire and it goes from there really and it's just a, a kind of good rollicking old hammer time really and um the music was done by a guy called Harry Robinson. Um, Hammer, Hammer had a decent kind of stable of composers. Um, the most famous was James Bernard, who did most of them. But when they, um, certainly when they did the kind of lighter stuff, um, you had kind of different, more um, kind of diverse composers um, coming in. And, and certainly at one point you had um, Mike Vickers from Man for a Man doing uh dracula ad 1972 and things like that <laughs> so going for a really kind of different feel but um it's this one is it's a i just love it. it again it's very big it is very british but also at the same time it kind of sounds like a western um it sounds like a british western and and probably because a lot of it was on horseback as well maybe that does make sense um but it's just, yeah, it's just very, very brassy. It's got a very, very kind of, and that's what I loved about those Hammer scores, is that they always just sounded very, very big and very brassy. And I think definitely they they had an, a very British sound to them. Um, but certainly in Twins of Evil, there's, there's some really nice emotional work as well, which is maybe something people might not kind of, uh, imagine from some from Hammer because again, in in even horror's got a class system. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it has. You're right. No, I don't. So, uh, so in in some people's eyes, Hammer was was generally seen as kind of the tackier side of of things, and it's it's that's what I love about um, revisiting these things. I mean, even the Universal monsters at the time, they were just kind of they were B pictures. Um, that just happened to be made really well and with the onset of time and how people viewed them and certainly how people see sort of stuff like the James Whale stuff, the Bride of Frankenstein and the old Dark House and saw how ahead of their time they were they were. And that they kind of certainly get a new appreciation, which is wonderful. Um and, and I'm just with Hammer and some of the Hammer stuff is class absolute classics. Um, it's and it's kind of it's lovely because it is like a a different take on the Universal monsters because um, it is a lot of a lot of the kind of ham stuff was just kind of looking to 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 do what Universal did um, with the monsters and just do it in a new light and and they did it wonderfully and there's a great bit near the end of Twins of Evil where they have the wrong twin and they're about to burn her at the stake. And then it's found out that she, it's found out at the last second that uh, that she's the, that she's not the uh, the bad twin. <laughs> so uh, so they get it done for mistake. And there's just a beautiful beautiful big emotional cue uh, and with a bit of tragedy in there. And it's just wonderful wonderful stuff. And I love it. When you were talking to Chris on his pod on the last horror podcast, one of the things you talked about, which 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 made me smile, was the was the was the genuine separation of the music from the film, where where actually the music, when judged, um, this completely contradicts my thing as art as not a competitive sport. But the the point you were making was that 
some really atrocious films had some really brilliant music made for them, which I think we can I think we can all get on board as a measure. It's not, you know, and it's interesting that the selection you've done, Twins of Evil. 1971 is one of the scores that Death Waltz Records has, has released, and I think there's a, there's a there's a fashion there that, that that Spencer Hickman seems to have as as fostered as much as discovered. I mean, I think he's I think he's been a you know one of the biggest um, one of the one of the big sort of klaxons going. Look, look, there's this really interesting music, you know, and you know, obviously taps into collectivism and stuff that that that. that uh, Collect, collecting as such, which which is a habit of a lot of genre fans, but I do think Twins of Evil is just a fantastic piece of music, and just to put it on record is is a valid exercise in of itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, yeah. Spencer, Spencer and Defaults definitely um, kind of led the way in kind of reestablishing um, and bringing out all these all these kind of soundtracks that, that weren't necessarily appreciated. Um, and picking vinyl as well was a really good medium for that. And yeah, there are there are a lot of I mean a, a lot of films that are terrible that have really really good music. Um, and going back to the Omen, I mean the, the the Omen trilogy is kind of seen as kind of dwindling in quality with each um, with each chapter. Um, which I'm, which yeah, is is true. Although I have a very big fondness for the second one. However, the music is kind of like is kind of just in an inverse way, <laughs> and the, uh, the 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 music for the second one is really interesting. It's got a lot of experimentation with electronics, but the music for the third one, which is really kind of usually derided as a terrible film, and yet it's not brilliant, um, is amazing. And the, there's this big kind of kind of big kind of religioso stuff in there, and it's a big, massive score um, with some amazing. I mean, there's this, there's one cue called the hunt. Basically, they take on a hunt, and the growing up Damien is is leading a hunt with his um, the the kind of the boy that he wants to be his servant or what have you. Um, and for me, it's it's the best best music that's ever been written for horse riding. It's just amazing. That's a goal that you've thrown down. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to listen to that now, aren't I? Specifically. Yeah, it's it's but the the whole score is, is just beautiful, and it's just yeah, and it's it's widely regarded as one of his best works for a film that's uh, that some people that a lot of people think is dreadful. So from your from your point of view, then is is the is the the, the rise of um of of record labels like Death Wells sort of a, a very positive thing in terms of the the importance now being placed upon because because he's doing new releases as well isn't he he's not just he's not just going through the archives is he he's he's working with filmmakers isn't he and stuff yeah absolutely and then the kind of stuff that he is re- releasing the new stuff is really good as well it's kind of got a bit kind of oversaturated maybe with other uh, record labels kind of coming in maybe doing kind of more obvious stuff so yeah and it's and the amount of Stuff that's being released now just generally means that it's a very expensive um, endeavor as well. If you, if you want, if you want to kind of catch up with everything, but no, but there's still really, really interesting stuff um, being released, classic catalog stuff and new stuff. You mentioned that, that, that being on vinyl was was a nice format, and obviously that adds to the expense of it. But what is it? What is it particularly about you enjoy about the vinyl to score relationship? I think that it generally it kind of necessitates for you to actually think about 
um, the album. And yeah, in, in many cases, what they are doing is they are taking the original album and reissuing that, which is good because that's what people had made for um, when it was on vinyl only back in the day, or vinyl was at least the um, the primary format. So where you have... Oh, 10 minutes against it flies, doesn't it? Right then, final choice of the five great British horror scores is 1960's Peeping Tom. Do you want to tell us about that score? Yeah, this is a great score. Um, so... This is a score by Brian Easdale, um, who obviously had, had done a ton of stuff for, um, for Power and Pressburger and stuff like Black My Sisters and the Red Shoes and things like that. into horror, Peeping Tom, which was um, seen as Michael Powell killing his career by doing a horror film, and uh, a horror film like it is, and at the time was was very kind of negatively received, um, but it, it's a genius film. Um, and I certainly can't think of a film before it that had done um, the kind of the POV approach that was later a really natural thing and stuff like Halloween and Friday the 13th and all the slasher films. I mean, arguably, it is the, the instigator, isn't it, in terms of... Yeah, yeah. I mean, to have Peeping Tom and um, Psycho in the same year, um, it's just amazing. There must have been conversations going on between camera crews going, I'm sure we can do this, I'm sure we can do this. And and eventually the directors heard it. <laughs> and, yeah, and, so, went, yeah. and went, let's give it a go. Because <laughs> I guess relatively speaking, yeah. I mean, they'd be huge compared to what we can do now, but I suppose every uh, advancing technology has always been about making things more compact, more handheld and and stuff. And I guess, you know... 1960, we were, we, were, we, were, we were well on that path, weren't we? And certainly thematically about putting the, uh, putting the audience in the eyes of the killer is, is such an interesting way. And the kind of the voyeuristic um, themes from there um, was, it was an absolute genius thing and makes it such a, a crazy film. Um, and the, the score is just mental as well. In what sense? It's just really, really kind of off kilter. Um, it's really kind of this. It's very much kind of jazz influenced, um, but it's it's a lot, there's a lot of kind of really kind of dissonance in there. Um, and again, it feels quite experimental. Um, and when he's with the open titles, and you're watching, he's watching the uh, the murder back on the screen, and you're and you're watching this this 
the uh, this voyeuristic with these crazy titles that are all that are almost kind of reflecting what's going on in his head, perhaps. Um, is a is is a really interesting thing, um, and then kind of putting that with um, the love theme that he has when he's with her and he's when he's photographing the the the, the girl he falls in love with, um, and it, again it's kind of from his mind there. It's it's kind of it's almost as if his his mind is a bit clearer with that. Um, and there's something a bit more traditional in there, but when it comes back, his his mind is is still the way it is, and it come, and it's again translated by um, by the the use of the instruments and and how they're used as well, and of course Jinji's language kind of stuff and really kind of dissonant stuff compared to. Uh, um, compared to a lot of film music, really. And what, why do you think that, that, that sort of complements the movie so well? What is it you think it does as a functioning score? I think because it does it does kind of help the connection between the audience and the killer, um, with the audience having um, the, uh, I think I said gateway about four times in this podcast, so I'll say it again, give it a fifth, um, the, the gateway into his mind and how and how his mind works, and and that his mind is not a normal mind. With that and Psycho, you've got a British film and an American film, really kind of changing the faces of horror, and in terms of what's acceptable and what people deem acceptable to be seen as well and to be done. I mean, so you've got Norman Bates murdering people in the shower while dressed as his mother, and then. Keeping his mother's corpse in the uh, in the in the in the basement, and then and then you've got Mark in uh, in in, um, in peeping Tom, and he's going out and hiring and hiring prostitutes and then murdering them, but filming it at the same time so we can play it back. It's crazy, and it's it's kind of it's just in the context of those years. Um, it's, it's not massively surprising that people had such kind of such controversy and such shock over both of them. Um, but that's what happens when 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 a new art movement begins. Yeah, I mean, moral, moral panic's not hard to generate if you introduce the complete new, don't you? If you exactly, if yeah. you if you talk about what you're not meant to be talking about. I mean, fam- famously in TV, one of the one of the Coronation Street garnered, and this is a sort of a crass example given this conversation, but I think it, I think it, 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 it illustrates the point: is that there was a guy in Coronation Street mate, bending his motorbike in a living room, and this was like you know very early on in the, in the, when the program started, so in the sixties, and there was a whole load of complaints, people saying it was disgraceful that you would show such a thing on TV, because who would who would do such a thing? But obviously, the people complaining didn't live anywhere near two up two downs. And I imagine that I'm not saying that, that the whole the whole of Soho is just decadent pe- decadent sex fiends, <laughs> but there were sex fiends. It's a bit like a, it's conversations I have with people of my parents' generation where they say there was no paedophiles when I was a kid. You're going, no, there was no newspapers writing about it. There's there's a difference, and 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 I guess when what Peeping Tom did brilliantly 
and I guess Psycho in the same way is it it introduced a really really ordinary way, way of life and brought evil that didn't change it wasn't rooted in folklore it didn't have supernatural powers it just was murderous to evil that was it that was what you were dealing with and you were and, and the way it was filmed made you look through the eyes of a killer I guess didn't it yeah absolutely an accessory to the crime which is you know we, we now go yes we watch horror films because they're vicarious but I, I'd love to have been there in 1960 when a few people went in and, and, and just that I, just being dis, completely disarmed by it and then you get the, the sort of discordance of the sound as well and you're being bombarded with like a load of new aren't you yeah absolutely and it's brilliant and 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 again, this is like you think of Psycho, and you think of the the the, the Psycho strings and and Bernard Herrmann stuff, and and then you think of Brian Easdale's stuff, and it is really this kind of dissonant, like every really kind of aggressive, um, assaulting, discordant stuff that um, people aren't used to. And and I mean, the, and I guess one of the big differences is. That these were right in the mainstream, weren't they? These weren't sort of... This is like The Martyrs getting released a few years ago and horror fans are going, oh, have you seen this? It's really, really violent. But, like, you know, it doesn't touch the mainstream. This is happening, you know, like you say, the guy doing the score for Power Pressburg, you know, Michael Powell. It's, this, is, this is the mainstream sort of taking us to the edge, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of Britain's best-loved filmmakers making a really, really horrific film. And uh, and and coming from that, and it's kind of, I guess now we've kind of at least generally we've evolved ourselves to the fact that if a really kind of big filmmaker wants to do a horror film, then it's kind of accepted. And obviously, with the seventies, you had a lot of people like William Freakin and people like that doing it as well. So it did become more of a mainstream thing. So it's going to be kind of hard to kind of maybe recreate that shock again. But yeah, no, it's, it's just. It's brilliant stuff, and it's yeah, it's a masterpiece, and and it's it's the one score we've discussed today that isn't available outside of the film. Oh, that's interesting. There's never and there's there's been like one track that's been like a, a one track that was recorded a while ago, but in terms of an actual soundtrack, it's never there's never been one. That's amazing. That really is, and that's that's a, a kind of oh, there we go. There's the uh, there's our there's our final thing. Here. So, um, yeah, just just to wrap up there, um, it's interesting that we go from Twins of Evil being a great example of the resurgence of interest in soundtracks and Death Pulse Records reissuing it, and then we get what is considered to be a sort of a, a real sort of shift in the marketplace for film scores with with an equally scandalous film, and it isn't still available is that just a copyright thing or do you, do you they know just, they just never released one wow okay maybe it's because at the time that the film had such controversy um i'm surprised no one's done it i mean it may there may be a rights thing then as well i mean i'm, oh. I'm not sure i don't know who owns the film at the moment um but uh yeah and it's it's just and I know Martin Scorsese is a massive fan of the film, mm. so maybe maybe someone needs to get a message to him to say that maybe you want to get someone to uh, to get the soundtrack. So <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it, it happens though. I mean there's a lot a lot of films still out there that don't have that have never had soundtracks released for one reason or another. Well, look, and, I mean, and then and then there's the list of films that still haven't been digitalized and. 
only, exactly, only yeah. exist on VHS. We, we've, we've kind of evolved into a, into a weird lack of lessons learned about archiving, but, you know, so that's for another podcast. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, look, that only leads me then to say thank you very much for your time, Charlie. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. It's been brilliant. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.